Father God, thank you for blessing us with this afternoon. Lord, uh, I pray that you would help my brothers and sisters to stay awake and stay attentive, Lord God. It's been a long day, no doubt, after a long week, but such good material from all of the people presenting from the Word of God these truths, uh, Lord, that are life-giving. I pray that you would continue to help us to be equipped for the work of ministry so we may exalt you as your people doing the work that you've called us to do as we follow in the footsteps of the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, I love Charles Spurgeon. I'm looking forward to having some conversations with Charles, when we get to glory, and in studying his life, reading biographies and his sermons, and hearing lectures on him myself, discovering that um, depression was a very real and dark part of his life, but we need to see that while depression was present in his life, he sought the Word of God so that he could have a balm be applied to his soul in those moments of darkness. So I want to give you a bit of um, a sketch, a biographical sketch of Spurgeon as we begin, and then we'll go to principles uh, for depression, lessons learned from his life on the subject matter of the, the darkness that won't lift. So Charles Spurgeon was born in 1834. And he died in 1892 at 57 years of age. He was a megachurch pastor before there was such a thing. In London, he was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle for 38 years. That church grew from 314 people in 1854 to 5,311 in 1892 when he died. He was considered a prodigy, a preaching prodigy. He became the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle when he was 20 years old. And that was not his first pastorate. He was part of that um, thriving church, or leading that thriving church at 20, but before then he was a pastor as early as 17 years old when he started his ministry. And he was packing out some of London's largest venues at the time. At age 23, he attracted 23,654 people at a venue called the Crystal Palace. He was also a brilliant man. He once said that he detected... Eight different thoughts that were present in his mind at the same time while he was preaching. I, I can't even fathom what that even means, right? I can think about one thing at a time, and that's it. He read The Pilgrim's Progress at age six. I was eating mud at age six. <laughs> that's right. His library as a pastor included over 12,000 volumes. And this is in the 1800s, right? Um, over 12,000 of the books that he used, that he, he actually called his tools. They were, they were his tools, but they were also his friends, he called them. He was 
in the habit of reading about six books per week. And he could remember the content from these books even years later. Before he was 20 years old, in fact, he had already preached more than 600 times. So he was brilliant. Spurgeon's sermons were printed each week and uh, they sold thousands upon thousands of copies. One year in particular, 1865, saw his sermons translated into more than 20 languages. Spurgeon also started a pastor's college and trained over 900 men for the ministry. All of these things are absolutely wonderful. The the Lord used Charles Spurgeon to great effect for the kingdom of God. If you want to know more about his life and ministry, there's lots of books that I could point you to. Uh, Just to get you started, you can turn to ChristianHistoryInstitute.org and just type in Charles H. Spurgeon. A lot of those facts, most of those facts, I got from just a, that small page of Did You Know These Things About Charles Spurgeon? Again, that was the ChristianHistoryInstitute.org. So all of those things, really, when you think about it, for many pastors, are like a dream come true. To have that kind of success, to preach so soundly and to preach so faithfully and to have so many hear the gospel and come to Christ at the level that Spurgeon saw is for many ministers even maybe a temptation toward envy. But you need to know that Spurgeon did live an extremely difficult life. His life was very hard. We look at the success, but we need to see the valleys as well. And so let's begin to talk about the darkness of Spurgeon's depression. We'll talk about the provocations to his depression first. He had poor physical health. This book by Michael Reeves called Spurgeon on the Christian Life has a great chapter on Spurgeon's depression. And in it, he talks about the fact that Spurgeon had a burning kidney inflammation called Bright's disease. He suffered from gout and rheumatism and neuritis. His physical sufferings got so bad that eventually he got to the point where he could only preach two-thirds of the time. He had to take a third of that time off because of his physical sufferings. On top of that, his wife Susanna, at age 33, became an invalid. And she rarely heard her husband preach until his death 27 years later. Add on top of that, that he was overworked. He worked what we would consider um, far too much. He often preached 10 times a week. So he would get other invitations from people to preach at different places, not just the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And so many weeks had him preaching 10 different times. And so he worked and worked and worked, making his life difficult. I praise the Lord for the Lord's blessing upon his life and the way he used him. But you can see some of the ways in which this list could lead a person to depression. Then there is the tragedy at Surrey Gardens Music Hall. At 22 years of age, 
He'd not been long in London. His twin sons were a month old at the time. And he was preaching at Surrey Gardens Music Hall to thousands of people when someone, as a joke, yelled out, Fire! Which led to a panic. Seven people died as a result, and 28 people were left with severe injuries. This is something that would haunt Spurgeon, really, for the rest of his life. Leading him to thoughts of darkness and depression. After this event, Susanna, his wife, said these words, My beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reasons that reason seemed to totter in her throne. Speaking of his mental ability and mental capacity, reason seemed to totter in her throne. And we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. And so, having that tragedy be another thing that would creep up into his consciousness and at times lead him to thoughts of darkness on top of his physical condition, on top of his overabundance of work, and then on top of even his success in ministry. You think, how could that be a provocation to depression, that he was successful? Listen to Spurgeon himself. He says, it might be imagined that amid special favors, our soul would soar to the heights of ecstasy and rejoice with joy unspeakable. But it is generally the reverse. The Lord seldom exposes his warriors to the perils of exultation over victory. He knows that few of them can endure such a test and therefore dashes their cups with bitterness. He's saying that So often it is that people, when they have success, the Lord uh, gives them a period of humbling or even humiliation to keep them from becoming proud or to keep them from focusing on themselves even. He points to a couple of examples in Scripture, in fact, uh, that he empathized with. Look with me at 1 Kings chapter 19. Success leading to depression. First Kings nineteen one through four. I'll set up the context for you. First Kings chapter eighteen, it's the famous account of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. This contest that Elijah sets up this altar that is there and the prophets of Baal spend half the day pleading with this God that doesn't exist to come and show himself. Nothing happens. They even cut themselves in kind of a a sick ritual to get Baal to show up. He doesn't. And then whenever the altar is set up for Yahweh to show himself, they soak it with water build a trench around it, put water in the trench. And after Elijah's prayer, God shows up, consumes the altar. All the water is licked up. 
to show that he is the true God, the one and only. And then Elijah slaughters the prophets of Baal at the brook Kishon toward the end of the chapter. Then in chapter 19, we hear this, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. He arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under the under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. After this glorious success on Mount Carmel, Elijah now is running in fear and wanting to die. And so Spurgeon could empathize with that kind of depression in the wake of success. He also talks about 2 Corinthians chapter 12 with Paul. Paul speaks in a, we might consider a strange way, he's talking about himself in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 12. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which many may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And then listen to this in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And three times he pleaded with the Lord that it would be taken from him, and it doesn't. It's not taken away, but... My grace is sufficient for you, Jesus says instead. So he's allowed to be caught up into the third heaven and witness this revelation. And he's given this thorn in the flesh to humble him so that he doesn't become conceited. And so there was empathy there on the part of Spurgeon when he was thinking about Paul. Listen now to Spurgeon's experience speaking of success. It's a great little book I'll recommend to you as well from Crossway. They put out these kind of uh, paperback classics recently. This one's called Encouragement for the Depressed by Charles Spurgeon. So listen to his own experience here. Such was my experience when I first became a pastor in London. My success appalled me, and the thought of the career that it seemed to open up so far from elating me cast me into the lowest depth out of which I uttered my missusier and found no room for a gloria in excelsis. Who was I that I should continue to lead so great a multitude? I would betake me to my village obscurity or emigrate to America and find a solitary nest in the backwoods where I might be sufficient for the things that would be demanded of me. It was just then that the curtain was rising upon my life's work and I dreaded what it might reveal. 
I hope I was not faithless, but I was timorous and filled with a sense of my own unfitness. I dreaded the work that a gracious providence had prepared for me. I felt myself a mere child and trembled as I heard the voice that said, Arise and thresh the mountains and make them as chaff. So he's saying, my success appalled me. I felt like a child when I was thinking about what was going to be demanded of me. So he can think about success and far from leading him to a place of elation, he says, it actually caused him fear and a sense of depression as well. He even pondered suicide. After the Surrey Gardens incident... One author says that he was put on suicide watch. And himself, Charles Spurgeon said, I was so unmanned by it. Someone watched me, for they did not know what might happen to me. And he considers Job chapter 7 and some of the very dark sayings of Job And he sympathizes with him. He says, I too could say with Job, my soul chooseth chooseth strangling rather than life. My soul chooses strangling rather than life. I could readily enough have laid violent hands upon myself to escape from my misery. And so he even considered at times suicide. That's how dark things got for our brother Spurgeon. And if you spend any time reading his Treasury of David, which is his commentary on the Psalms, I I recommend that to you. Wonderful commentary on the Psalms. Really probably my favorite commentary on the Psalms. Um, He has some important quotations with relationship to Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is the only Psalm that doesn't end on a note of hope. Now, praise the Lord, it's there. Because I think that a lot of people can derive comfort knowing that saints in the past have felt this way and yet have still turned to God even though there hasn't been a sense of comfort as they pray. doesn't mean it doesn't come in the future, but it is that psalm that doesn't end on a note of hope. And so in that commentary on Psalm 88, Spurgeon says this, He says, the mind can descend far lower than the body. For it, there are bottomless pits, speaking of the mind. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more. But the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways. You can only get hurt so much bodily before you actually die. He's saying your soul, you can go deeper and deeper and deeper. He knew that experientially. And the sermons that he preached that were either given to the subject of depression as the main uh, subject matter or a minor subject matter in the sermon, it's it's dozens upon dozens of sermons talked to or, or taught about depression in particular. But there's light. And that's what I want to talk to you about for most of our time together is the light for Spurgeon's depression because he knew God, because he knew the scriptures, because he was a faithful believer in the inerrant, sufficient word. He did not allow himself to continue in depression without a fight. 
So let's talk about some of the principles for speaking to our depression according to God's word. I'm going to give you a number of quotes there in your notes. This is a quote from Spurgeon directly. He says, beware, my dear Christian friends, of living by feeling. Beware, my dear Christian friends, of living by feeling. Here's a larger quote speaking of the same kind of issue. He says, we have to assure you that the condition of your frames and feelings does not affect your safety in Christ. We have to remind you that though you are changed, God is not changed. The promise, the old covenant, stands just as fast when you are down in distress as when you are on the high places of exaltation. You are saved by faith, not by feeling. And when feeling ebbs out to the very last degree, still hold on to Jesus. Sink or swim, still trust in Him. When you see no trace of His actual presence with you, rely upon Him all the same and be of good cheer. I find great comfort in that. Because of verses that correspond, right? He's not just talking about things that have no connection in Scripture. Far from it. A text that you likely know, Galatians 2.20, our brother Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith. We don't live by feeling. We live by faith. But here is the thing that we want to do. We actually, in our flesh, want to live by feeling. We follow our feelings. And though as Christians we say, yeah, of course I'm not supposed to follow my heart. I know that I am fleshly. Even though I'm redeemed, I still have the flesh within. We think these things. We say these things. But really when it comes down to it and we're tempted, so often we follow our feelings and we... We judge reality based on how we're feeling. He's saying even if you don't feel his presence, continue to cling to him. Because the realities of Jesus Christ and the gospel are true, whether or not you feel they are true. Your feeling doesn't have any bearing upon the reality of the gospel. You can feel like it's not true, but it is true. And so when you feel like it's not, keep clinging to Christ. That's why Psalm 88 is such a beautiful psalm. Because even though the feelings for the psalmist aren't there, Heman is the guy's name who's, who wrote Psalm 88. You can tell it ends in a very dark place, but he's still crying out to God. That's the point. He's, who's he going to with his trouble? Where's he going with his feelings of darkness? He's going to God. And that's the point. Even when the feelings aren't there, keep going to God. Don't trust your feelings. Trust what God has revealed because it's true regardless of your emotions related to your depression or whatever circumstances you may be going through. Look with me at Luke chapter 17. We'll look starting in verse 5. Luke 17, starting in verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, 
increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. One of the truths we need to to grab from this text of Scripture is, it's not really the amount of faith that matters. It's the object of your faith that matters, right? What your faith is in. It can be this small, it can be tiny faith, but if it's faith in Jesus... That's what matters. The Savior, the object of your faith is what matters. And so I like what Spurgeon says. He says, care more for a grain of faith than a ton of excitement. We're always looking for feelings. We we want more of these feelings of elation. We want to be ecstatic about our Christianity and God's promises. And we're always trying to judge our... um, Condition based on our feelings. But we need to keep looking to the objective reality of who Christ is and what he has done and be more excited about faith than the feelings. Care more for a grain of faith than a ton of excitement. Praise God. And so that becomes very practical for you if you're struggling with depression or your counselees who might be struggling with depression. Say, listen, what you want to do right now because you're depressed is you want to take your foot off the gas when it comes to your Christian faith. You want to stop reading the Bible. You want to stop praying. You want to be hands-off in terms of the service of the local church. That's what, in our depression, what we're tempted to do is just kind of hole up in our houses, isolate ourselves. That's what you feel like doing. But what does faith do? Faith keeps pressing in, looking to Jesus, trusting his word, acting on that word, praying and pleading. And even if the feelings aren't there yet, you keep doing that. And God, in his time and in his way, he will bring joy. But I think we, we have this idea that our relationship with Jesus is formulaic. It's not a formula like, if, if I do this, then God will do this right when I do this, right? I don't think that's how the scriptures show us the Christian life. There's a great chapter in Heath Lambert's book, Finally Free, called um, Fighting Lust with uh, a Dynamic Relationship to Jesus. Now, you could take that and apply that to any sin. Right? Not just the sin of lust. But the whole point of that chapter is we don't fight sin with a formula. We relate to Jesus. And so um, how do we relate to one another as people? It's not this formula like I do this, you do this, we get this product. Right? It's not engineering. It's not mathematics. It's a, it's a living relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And so we keep praying. And Instead of thinking that we'll get joy like we walk up to a vending machine and we push the joy button, we put in the money and we get, we get joy like that, we think of it like this instead. I like what John Piper says in his book, um, it's uh, When I Don't Desire God, How to Fight for Joy. He says it's, it's more like this. It's more like you're taking the soil and you're tilling it up. You're preparing the soil for planting seeds like a farmer. You cast the seed, right? You make sure that you scare away the crows, But then you wait, don't you? 
You wait on God to bring the rain. You wait on God to bring the sunshine. You wait on God to bring the growth. You, you have responsibility. You have to, to prepare the soil, till the soil, plant the seeds, scare away the crows. But you trust God in his way and in his timing to cause the growth. It's not like a vending machine where you just walk up to it and you push the joy button and you get it. It's a relationship and it's more like farming than it is putting your money into that machine. And so think of it like that. I think Spurgeon is understanding this. What else? He says, the sympathy of Jesus is the next most precious thing to his sacrifice. I love that. Jesus sympathized with us whenever we are downcast. In Isaiah 53, verse 3, he's called the man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. In Hebrews 4.15, is another one you can write down right next to that. We read this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yeah, without sin. And you have to connect verse 15 with verse 16 because he says, let us then, or he could say, let us therefore, right? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Christ sympathizes with you and your weaknesses, then let that be um, a provocation for prayer. Let that thrust you into the throne room boldly and confidently so you can ask for what you need whenever you are suffering or being tempted, he says. The sympathy of Christ leads us to the throne room so that we can ask God for mercy. So we can, we can rest in that. We can also look at texts like Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 38. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says to Peter, James, and John, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Very sorrowful, even to death. He understands when you are downcast. He understands when you are sorrowful. He gets it. And we can draw near to God boldly because of it. This is another quote from Spurgeon. He says, Jesus is touched not with the feeling of your strength, but of your infirmity. As the mother feels with the weakness of her baby, so does Jesus feel with the poorest, saddest, weakest of his own. That's helpful. He is touched by your infirmity. He's not, he's not saying, no, you need to get stronger. Then that will attract my gaze. No, it's our weakness that draws him. We can cast our burdens on him. Spurgeon knew that. What else about Jesus was a comfort to our brother Spurgeon? He said, Jesus is still great. Let his servants suffer as they might. He's still great. Now, the context in which he said that 
makes it even more powerful. He said that after, I mean, like, like this is two or three weeks after the Surrey Gardens incident that he says this. And this, this truth is what um, led him to basically gain some ground and get his, his wits back to him. This thought of Christ. And he derived it from Philippians 2.9. He looked at this text. It sobered him in the midst of his sorrow. So leading up to verse 9, it's talking about the humiliation of Christ, the, the humility of our Savior who came from heaven to earth to the cross. right? And then verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. So he took that text and he said, Jesus is still great. No matter how much I've suffered, no matter how much other people have suffered, and and you can imagine the temptation perhaps to, to blame yourself. You're there preaching to thousands and seven people die. 28 people sustain severe injuries. And yet he can tell himself, Jesus is still great. He's still exalted. He's still on the throne right now. It sobered him, it anchored him, and he was able to go back to preaching because of these truths. But what else? He says this as well. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, So speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. He's saying that as we meditate and think deeply on who God is, calm and comfort is given to our souls. Read uh, the prophets. You read the Psalms and you get this big God theology. And that can give you a sense of peace no matter what you're suffering. It's interesting. This, there's a, a, a story that Spurgeon tells about Luther that gave him comfort. And so uh, Martin Luther also was a man that was prone to depression. And so um, Spurgeon... This is a kind of a longer quote from him. He talks about this story that he heard about Spurgeon and his wife that gave him comfort. And it has to do with thinking about God. Okay, so listen to this. On one occasion, Luther fell so low in spirit that his friends were frightened at what he might say or do. Things were going ill with the great cause and the reformer might in his dreadful condition have upset everything. So his friends got him out of the way, saying to themselves, the man must be alone. His brain is overworked. He must be quiet. He rested a bit and came back looking as gloomy as ever. Rest and seclusion had not stilled the winds nor lulled the waves. Luther was still in a storm and judged that the good cause was shipwrecked. He went home, but when he came to the door, nobody welcomed him. 
he entered their best room and there sat Catherine, his wife, all dressed in black, weeping as from a death in the house. By her side lay a mourning cloak, such as ladies wear at funerals. Ah, says he, Kate, what matters now? Is the child dead? She took her head and said the little ones were alive, but something much worse than that had happened. Luther cried, Oh, what has befallen us? Tell me quick. I am sad enough as it is. Tell me quick. Good man, said she, have you not heard? Is it possible that the terrible news has not reached you? This made the reformer the more inquisitive and ardent, and he pressed to be immediately told of the cause of sorrow. Why, said Kate, have you not been told that our heavenly father is dead and his cause in the world is therefore overturned? Martin stood and looked at her and at last burst into such a laugh that he could not possibly contain himself, but cried, Kate, I read thy riddle. What a fool am I? God is not dead. He ever lives. But I have acted as if he were. Thou hast taught me a good lesson. <laughs> so she's, you know, a little cheeky, right? <laughs> a little bit sarcastic there with what she did. But he got it immediately. She, she knew her husband, right? And so she communicates to him in a way so that he will come to himself and say, oh, why am I so sad? Why am I overcome with grief? God is still alive. He's still sovereign. He's still moving in this world. He's still building his church. Why am I so sorrowful? And you see how meditating on the character of God can bring us out of those pits of despair. So what else about God's character can help us whenever we're struggling with depression? The sovereignty of God. We talked about this a little bit last night. Tailor-made circumstances. Romans 8, 28 and 29. says, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And then we find in verse 29 what the good is. We talked about this last night. The good is that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. But that doesn't mean that every life looks the same. That doesn't mean that every person's circumstances look the same. That means that He will have the same end, the same goal, but not the same means to get there. Every life is different. And so this is what Spurgeon says. The experience of every Christian is in some respects different from the experience of every other. But it is the result of God's plan. Your being led through a certain state of deep depression and of severe mental exercise is down in the book. And as for my brother yonder... His being led through a state of exaltation and rapturous delight. That's down in the plan too. And it is right that in one case you should have defeat and that in the other cause you should enjoy triumph. My brother, shall we be made a perfect man in Christ Jesus by his joys? Some excellences will be in him which nothing but joy could have fostered you also shall be brought to spiritual development by your sorrows. And some powers shall be in you which nothing but sorrow ever could have educated in your case. The experiences of God's servants are very like the wanderings of the children of Israel in the wilderness. They were led here and there and around about, and yet their road was the best way to Canaan. What's he saying? He's saying there's some people that God's going to get there 
through, yeah, maybe a lot of delight. And you look at it and you're like, their, their life has been so much easier than mine. And that was God's plan for getting them to spiritual maturity and to conformity to Christ. Maybe your life is harder, but God knows what each person needs to become like Christ. And so I, I can't look over there and get jealous at somebody because I, I think that I should have that life. I should be experiencing the same thing. God in His great wisdom and His great goodness, along with His great sovereignty, He's working my life. He's working through and in my life a conformity to Jesus that He knows can only be affected by certain circumstances and yours too. And that's what He's saying. So you can say it like this. Um, Your life and my life, they're tailor-made for us to become more like Jesus. Tailor-made to you. And so don't doubt him. He knows better. I love, I love Job. I love the book of Job because um, he never understands. He never, he never gets to the point where he, he gets all of the picture. He doesn't get to step back and see what we see. We get to understand everything that's going on behind the scenes because we're reading the book of Scripture. But Job never understood all of the particulars about his situation. We know he didn't. And even at the end, whenever God is speaking to him, he never says, here's why I allowed Satan to test you. Never says that. But only asks him a series of questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you know where I store the snow? All these questions to remind Job, I'm God. You're not. I don't have to tell you. And you don't need to know all the particulars. And that's for us too. God has tailor-made your life and my life so that we'll become more like Christ. Do we trust Him? Do we trust that He's always good, always wise, and that's applied to His sovereignty as well? Inside the sovereignty of God too, Spurgeon got much blessing and comfort from the doctrines of grace. Romans 8, 29 and 30 give us the chain of salvation. That's what they call it there, those two verses. The chain of salvation. Listen to this. Wonderful couple of verses that draw out some of the important doctrines of grace. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I love the fact that glorified is um, stated as an already reality. (laughs) Right? (laughs) And so take a, a text like that, and then a quote from Spurgeon makes sense about how much joy he got from the doctrines of grace, even when he was struggling with depression. He says... I confess to you that when depressed in spirit, I love uh, a bit of thorough Calvinistic doctrine. The doctrine of election is noble music. Predestination is a glorious hallelujah. Grace abounding, love victorious, truth unchanging, faithfulness invincible. These are melodies such as my ear delights in. The truth of God is fit Music for angels. The harps of the redeemed never resound with more noble music than the doctrines of grace. 
Every truth has its melody. Every doctrine is a psalm unto God. When my heart is faint, bring me a minstrel and let him sing of free grace and love. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So he says, I'm just going to tell myself of this, this Calvinistic doctrine that simply says this. I can boil it down like this. Salvation is of grace from beginning to end. Salvation is of God from beginning to end. And if he has brought us into his kingdom, if he has chosen to set his love upon us and eternity past, then he's not going to fail at any part of that chain of salvation. If you are predestined, you are glorified. And everything in between. And that was a delight to his soul, to meditate on those truths that he cannot lose his salvation, that he is ever with God because of his grace that is undying and free. What else? The faithfulness of God. Even though he struggled... Even though he was depressed, he kept testifying to the faithfulness of God. And that was a necessary balm for his soul during those times. We, lo- we looked at Psalm 119, verse 75 last night. said, in faithfulness you've afflicted me. Speaking of God. In faithfulness you have afflicted me. Psalm 36, verse 5 says, your faithfulness extends to the clouds. And so listen to the candid expression of Spurgeon and then his testifying of the faithfulness of God. He says, I have gone to the very bottoms of the mountains. As some of you know, in a night that never can be erased from my memory, a night connected with this place, I have had to pass also through severe suffering and trial from the calumny and scorn of man with abuse hailed pitilessly on my head. And I have had to pass through severe personal bodily pain. But as far as my witness goes, I can say that he is able to save unto the uttermost. And in the last extremity, and he has been a good God to me. Unfaithful I have been. He has forgiven me that and will forgive. But unfaithful to me, he has never been. Saying, I've struggled. I've suffered I've gone to the depths of despair, but I know that he is able to save me unto the uttermost, and I know that he has never been unfaithful to me. I think it's valuable as you counsel people and counsel your own soul in despair and sorrow, even if your feelings aren't there, to say to God and to say to others, he has never been unfaithful to me testifying, choosing to say he has always been faithful. He has never let me down. I think of um, Psalm 34, verse 5. Those who look to God, their faces are radiant and they shall never be ashamed. That word ashamed there in the Hebrew has the idea of you will never be disappointed. You'll look to God for what you hope for and he will fulfill it. He'll give you what you need to keep going for his glory. You won't be disappointed that he didn't give you what you needed. He was faithful always. Their faces are never ashamed. What else? I'll make sure. Oh, am I out of time? When do I get done in here? 
Quarter till. We've got ten minutes, okay. In the world of preaching and teaching, ten minutes is an eternity. Okay. <laughs> We're good. We're good. <laughs> Light for Spurgeon's depression. Blessed is he who is well skilled in heavenly pharmacy and knows how to lay hold on the healing virtues of the promises of God. Are you skilled in heavenly pharmacy? Are your counselees skilled in heavenly pharmacy? 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that all the promises of God are yes for us in Christ. They are yes, and so we say amen. Grabbing hold of the promises that we have been given in Christ and using those as a sweet remedy to our despair and our despondency. That's what Spurgeon sought to do. In fact, there is a a little book um, by a Puritan of the day called Precious Bible Promises by Samuel Clark. And it was said that Spurgeon kept that book with him, like at all times, so he could pull it out and remind himself in the moment of what he needed to remember and, and, and grab hold of. I love that he would do such a thing, that he would be ready to apply that to his heart. Um, you can do that with apps, right? You don't need to have a book in your pocket necessarily, but you can have a, a good app. And I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, my church uses the Fighter Versus app. We recommend that to our people. We do a weekly scripture memory at our church. And Fighter Versus is an app that you can, they have a lot of uh, verses that are already in there. And they even have a topical index so you can search different verses that they use that you can grab a hold of in your time of need. But also it's got a section where you can add any of your own verses. So you can collect them. You can take some of these verses that you've been um, really inundated with here at this conference and you can put them in that app so you can be ready whenever you need them. And your counselee can do the same thing. And speaking of that, kind of going along with being well-versed in the heavenly pharmacy. Oops, hold on. We're missing something here. Okay, you guys have what is prayer but the promise is pleaded. you have that in your notes? Okay, then F, you have F. Okay, for some reason it didn't make it into my PowerPoint presentation. I apologize. So F is what is prayer but the promises pleaded. You're taking promises and prayer and you're taking them to the Lord. Say, Lord, you, you have, you've said this. This is true. You've promised in, this to me in Christ. And so please be faithful and deliver this promise to me. I am in such need. It's scripture-focused prayer. Scripture-focused prayer is your, your first little sub-point there under F. So listen to this. This is a, a, a book by a guy named Zach Eswine called Spurgeon's Sorrows, Realistic Hope for Those Who Suffer from Depression. This is what he says, Spurgeon that is, speaking of promises and prayer. Spurgeon says, I like in my time of trouble to find a promise which exactly fits my need and then to put my finger on it and say, Lord, this is thy word. I beseech thee to prove that it is so. 
by carrying it out in my case. I believe that this is thine own writing, and I pray thee make it good to my faith. I believe in plenary inspiration, speaking of the scriptures, and I humbly look to the Lord for a plenary fulfillment of every sentence that he has put on record. And put my finger on that verse, that promise, and I'm going to plead it to the Lord because he, well, first of all, it's impossible for him to lie. He's going to fulfill all of his promises. God is truth. So it's scripture-focused prayer. And so he, one of the beautiful promises that Spurgeon grabbed a hold of that he loved in his depression was Psalm 103. Verse 15, I'm sorry, 13. Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. You can imagine him praying, God, you are my father. You promised to show me compassion as your child. I need that compassion. I need that pity right now because I'm in a dark place. Please deliver it to me in this moment. So that's just a small example, but he loved that promise in particular. He also would pray psalm-like prayers. And I'll read this prayer of Spurgeon, and you can tell it does sound like David or Asaph or some of the other authors of the Psalms. He says, When some months ago I was racked with pain to an extreme degree so that I could no longer bear it without crying out, I asked all to go from the room and leave me alone. And then I had nothing I could say to God but this, Thou art my Father, and I am thy child. And thou as a father art tender and full of mercy. I could not bear to see my child suffer as thou makest me suffer. And if I saw him tormented as I am now, I would do what I could to help him and put my arms under him to sustain him. Wilt thou hide thy face from me, Father? Wilt thou still lay on me thy heavy hand and not give me a smile from thy countenance? Makes you think of like Psalm 13. Will you forget me forever? Those kinds of questions, those crying out moments that our soul will plead when we are downcast. He would pray like that and he would also call for persistent prayer. That's the next sub-point. Persistent prayer. Thinking of Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, Paul says. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Continue praying. Don't give up on praying. He says, would you see evils magnified and mercies diminished? Would you find your tribulations increased sevenfold and your faith diminished in proportion? Then restrain prayer. He's saying, you want to see life get really hard? Then stop praying. Continue praying, keep going to God, even if your prayers are answered or if they're delayed or if God says no, keep praying. Now, here's some benefits of depression from Spurgeon. Benefits of depression. First one is found here. I would go into the deeps a hundred times to cheer a downcast spirit. It is good for me to have been afflicted, 
that I might know how to speak a word in season to one that is weary. He's saying, I had to go through this. I went through this, this valley so that I could help other people. So I could sympathize with other people. And I wouldn't be impatient with them whenever they come and they're talking to me about their grief. He was made more able to shepherd those people who are struggling with sorrow as a result of it. And it makes me think of 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Where we read this from the Apostle Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now that might seem like it's kind of noodly, right? Going to untangle that thing. But he's saying, essentially, when God comforts us in our affliction, he's setting us up for future ministry so that we can comfort others. Say, let me tell you what God did to to my soul, how he helped me, and he can help you too with the same reality, the same truth, the same promise. The benefit to his depression, Spurgeon says. Another benefit, he says, there is such a tendency in all the branches of the living and true vine to try to bring forth fruit without deriving nourishment from the stem. So the Lord, every now and then, takes away the visible flowing of divine consolation in order that we may consciously realize our entire dependence upon Him. He's saying sometimes we are brought to places of sorrow so that we'll be thrust back on to the Lord in trust and dependence. We see our need for Him again freshly and it casts us back onto Him in faith. So Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71. Beautiful. These are ones to memorize, I think. Where the psalmist writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. And verse 71, that same stanza, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. He teaches us. He brings us back to Him, back to His Word with our suffering and our affliction. What else? A few points of practical wisdom for depression. This is from Spurgeon. Cheerfulness readily carries burdens which despondency dares not touch. Cheerfulness. So think of Proverbs 17.22. A joyful heart is good medicine. But a crushed spirit dries up the bones. It was said of Spurgeon that he laughed so readily and frequently. He's saying, well, the guy struggled with depression. What do you mean? He was also very quick to laugh. I remember reading a biography of Spurgeon years ago. And one one friend of his talked about how they were just walking along in the woods. And all of a sudden, after they got through having a good laugh about something, Spurgeon said, let's stop and praise God for laughter. Cheerfulness, ready to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at things that are wholesome in this life. It's good medicine, the Bible says, and so does Spurgeon here. Also, this practical wisdom, not knowing how how deep the wound is, the foolish physician may think it can be healed with any common ointment. 
I have known men to say to a person in deep distress things which have really aggravated him and his malady too. What does he mean? He's saying that people um, are not being sensitive to another person's struggles and think that they know exactly what they need in a moment. They're, they're not careful. They're not asking questions. They're kind of being brutish with their counsel or their ministry and ends up hurting the person instead of helping the person. Think of Proverbs 25.20. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day or like vinegar on soda. Saying, you know, someone's really struggling. They're, they're really downcast and you just go come in the room like singing to them joyfully. That's being insensitive. So be careful with the kind of counsel you give whenever people are really suffering from a downcast spirit. Be more wise and take Take your counsel and apply it in a way that is sensitive, patient, and it is focused on their problem. Also, he says here, rest time is not waste time. It is economy to gather fresh strength. He said, in our depression, sometimes we have to go and and get some rest. We've got to go enjoy some time outside, enjoying God's creation. We've got to take a nap sometimes. That's okay. That's not wrong. In Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, you can go look that up. It says that God gives to his beloved sleep as a gift. That's gift language that's being used. He gives us sleep. We should be resting. And whenever we don't get enough sleep and rest, it does strange things to our minds. We can be tempted a lot more easily when we have not gotten sleep. And finally, I'll just say this because we're out of time. He said, this is a quote from Spurgeon. This is very practical. Sedentary habits have a tendency to create despondency in some constitutions. What he's saying is, don't sit still for a really long time, right? Don't get up, move, right? Get outside, exercise. And there's, there's truth to that, isn't there, Right? We, so if, if you're counseling struggling with depression, one of the things you can recommend is that make sure that you're exercising. Make sure that you get outside. Don't just stay cooped up in your house all the time or at the desk all day long. And so that's practical too. Thank you guys. Appreciate your time. Let me pray for you really quick. Lord, take this. Use this in our hearts. Use this in our ministries so that you may be exalted. More and more people come to bow the knee to you in practical ways as they suffer from grief and sorrow. In Jesus we ask it. Amen.